Now, I think another picture is going to go up on the screen. Is this right? Okay, now, what is this thing for? And how would you make use of this? To set a bit of context, it's a little bit bigger than a teaspoon. And I heard of someone who had one of these in his sugar bowl and then was amused watching visitors trying to spoon sugar into their tea and failing and struggling and being a bit irritated by it because that's a misuse of it. What is it? What's it for? How would you make use of it? Well, you can't tell how to use it until you know what it is. And it is an olive spoon. Do you get it now? You pick up the olive with it, and the oil drains through the hole, and then you can eat your olive. But you can't know what it is, and you can't know how to use it, you can't make proper use of it until you know what it is. Uh, That person was being rather mischievous, putting it in his sugar bowl, because it would just cause people to struggle and be frustrated, because they didn't know what it was. Okay, we can get rid of the picture now. And it's the same for us humans. You can't tell how we should live or what life is about until we know what we are. You can't answer the big questions of life if you're not clear what us humans are. And we've got to a part of the Bible that tells us what we are. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. And today we've got to verses 26 to 28. We've been in Genesis 1 for, I think it's three weeks now, and we've been seeing it's all about God. So far our emphasis has been learning about God. God is the subject of nearly every sentence of Genesis 1. But we've also heard last week, Genesis 1 is telling us God cares about humans. It's a chapter that begins with God, he's the subject of every sentence, it's all about God, and yet it's a chapter that in many ways is very human-centred. Because God's making a world that is all centred on humans. And the climax is, the verses we get to today, verses about humans. So today we get to those verses, let's read verses 26 to 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Those verses tell us who we are. And we need to hear it so that, well, first so we know how we should live, but also so we hear how good God's plan is and we want to achieve it. We want that plan for ourselves But then we'll find you can only achieve it through Jesus. So who are we? Well, 
Verse 26 says, we are the image of God. Verse 27 says again, we have been made in the image of God. Genesis 1 has been describing God making planet Earth and plants and animals and then you get to verse 26 and suddenly it all slows down. And suddenly it gives a whole load more detail. And suddenly it changes the language from just God said, let there be light and there was, to let us do something. God starts to consult and put more emphasis. In other words, creation is reaching its climax. And its climax is a little creature of about about five to six foot tall, a warm-blooded, two-legged mammal. But more than an animal. Different from an animal because made in the image of God. What does that mean? Oh, there have been loads of suggestions, loads of speculations about what that means. So academics like to say, oh, it must be our reason. We've got this great reason. Artists would like to say, oh, it must be our creativity. We're like the creator. We're creative people. Others might say, oh, it's our moral sense. And on we could go with loads of ideas. But instead of guessing, let's get the answer from Genesis 1. What do verses 26 to 28 say to explain What is this image of God? And we're going to get three R's from Genesis 1, three words beginning with R, that then lead to another R we need to get from the rest of the Bible. So the first R is relationship. Relationship. Now we're made in God's image, so we're made to be like God in some way. Well then, what is this God like? Well, he is one God. We saw right back in verse 1, in the beginning God. He's one God, just one. And yet we've seen in the last two weeks, as we've gone through the chapter, there are hints here that he's more than one person. And you move on in the Bible and you get more than hints. You get, ex- you get told. He's three persons, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And it is very significant that one of those hints that God's more than one person, is verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule. Let us make man in our image and let them rule. God's described as one God, but he says, let us. This one God, God says, let us. He seems to be more than one person. And then he makes a a creature described as one creature, man. Let's make him. But then he says, let them. Do you see the parallel? One God says, let us. He makes one creature, man, and says, let them. Oh, is there a parallel here? Yes, there is. You get it again in verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, Male and female, he created them. And I know that some Bibles translate it differently, but they've really messed it up, actually. That's the correct translation. Man, first half of the verse says man and him, but the second half of the verse says male and female and them. Oh, that's very significant. Unity, named after the head of the relationship, yet plurality. That's true of God. Unity, one God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, named after the head of the relationship God. And then you've got 
unity, man, there's this one being man, but plurality, male and female, but named after the head of the relationship, man. God's making a being that in some way is like him. Why is Genesis telling us this about male and female? The animals aren't described as male and female, although we all know they are male and female. It's saying male and female is fundamental to our identity as humans. It's one of the ways we reflect God. Not that God is male and female. Not that God has, you know, Father, Son and Spirit have different sexes. No, but just as God is Father, Son and Spirit, same essence, equally God, but different with different roles, so man, and I use that word purposely because it's what Genesis 1 uses and language shapes how we think, so man is male and female. Same essence, equally image of God, but different with different roles. Let's have a think about what this is like for our experience. What was probably the first thing said about you when you were born? Probably it's a girl or it's a boy. That that seems to have been the reaction down the generations to be just about the first thing said. And that's a fine biblical response because the Bible says this is fundamental to how God has made us. Now, our society is trying to overturn that. We all know that, don't we? Trying to turn everything gender neutral. It's actually hard to work out what our society is saying. Feminism seems to be saying there is no difference apart from the biological. All the other stuff is just stereotypes or cultural conditioning. And the transgender movement seems to be saying actually the biological doesn't matter. You are just who you identify as even if it contradicts the biological. It's all a complete confused mess. How much better is the Bible? that says, embrace that God made us male and female. Be glad about God as, how God has made you. Are you a woman? Be glad God's made you to be a woman. Are you a man? Be glad God has made you to be a man. It's part of his plan for a humanity that is varied yet united, just as he is varied yet united. And the Bible says it's, it's more than biological differences. As we go on through Genesis, we'll find, in fact, you you can find almost straight away, that there are differences of roles. Now, the Bible doesn't define them in very tight, stereotypical ways. We'll move on in Genesis and find, there's a man called Jacob, and he prefers cooking to hunting. And his dad thinks he's not very macho and prefers his son who's into hunting. But Jacob is actually the better of the two. It has Priscilla helping Apollos to understand the Bible better. It it doesn't have very tight, stereotypical roles. But there are differences in roles right from creation, right from Genesis chapter 2. So don't engage in any battle of the sexes. It's roaring all around us, but please, Christians should not be engaging in it. Uh, We should not be engaging in any derogatory attitudes to the other sex. Any self-pitying attitude about how God has made you. Don't go along with our society trying to flatten out the differences. God made us male and female. And it is put here in Genesis 1 as fundamental to who we are. But this male and female isn't just about differences. It's also about relationship. God is a relational God. Father, Son and Holy Spirit 
always love each other. So he made man in his image to be a relational being. We get to chapter 2 and we find this male and female love each other. And we find this male and female in this united relationship of love. And we find that they're made for this. And they are what we would call married to each other, although I don't think it uses the word married. Now this relationship between Father, Son and Holy Spirit is a creative relationship. Out of their relationship comes all the power and the variety and the goodness and the beauty of the created world. And so God made man in his image to be male and female in relationship to be a creative relationship. Verse 28. Let's have a look at verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth. Just like Father, Son and Holy Spirit are in relationship and it's a creative relationship, out of it comes the whole universe. So, mankind are made to be in this creative relationship and out of that relationship comes the human race. Out of that relationship comes more people who are the image of God. Out of that relationship comes all the creativity and the ability and the achievements of the human race. So parents, remember that when you're changing the next dirty nappy. Remember that when there is an argument raging between your children. Remember that when there's another event you miss because you've got to be at home looking after children. Yes, Bringing up children is different after Genesis 3. It has been massively affected by the fall, by sin. But it is still doing what Genesis 1 verse 28 says. It is still an amazing part, an amazing way you're part of mankind reflecting the relational God, the creative God. Now, isn't that a much better way to think of your identity than the way that our world does? What's your job and its status? How much money have you got? What letters have you got after your name? This is part of who we are. But, there is a big but I've got to give here. I've got to correct a possible misunderstanding. Because you might think like this, okay, that's what it means to be the image of God, that's what it means to be fully human, so we are incomplete and we are not fully the image of God unless we're married and having children. That would seem a logical response, wouldn't it, to what I've said. And that is the pattern for mankind in Genesis 1. But what is the pattern for the complete, full image of God living in the world as it is today? What is the pattern for the complete, full image of God in this fallen world? It's Jesus. That's why we read Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the perfect man. And he wasn't married, and he had no children. But he fully reflected God in how he related to family and friends and strangers. To people he worked with and people he relaxed with to people he helped and people he listened to. He related to them in a way that fully was the image of God, perfectly was the image of God. And so in Jesus, like Jesus, we can reflect God in the way he intends, 
whether you have a husband or a wife or children or not. That's very important. We take that part into account. The image of God means relationship. The image of God's second R means rule. Rule. Now, too often, when people are wondering, what does it mean to be the image of God? People just think in terms of characteristics we have. So is it our mind? Is it our creativity? Is it our sense of right and wrong? Is it our ability to communicate in a way that none of the animals can? Uh, And all of those, I think, must be part of the image of God. But the emphasis of Genesis 1 is not something we have. It's something we are here to do. We reflect God by what we're here to do. Let's see that in verse 26. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Image and rule are put right together. Verse 27, we're made in the image of God, male and female, so we can do verse 28. Verse 28 basically is saying, have children so mankind can rule over creation. Verse 28, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Genesis 1 ties together image of God and ruling over creation. Now, in many countries, if you go into a post office or into a town hall or into a government building or into a library, what will you see as you go in? Those who've travelled may know this. You'll often see a picture of the president, an image of the president who rules that country. Why? Because those buildings and the people in them are to represent his rule and they are to put his rule into practice. There is an image there to say, this is the one who rules and we represent him. And so humans have been put on earth to be like that image of the president. We're to represent God's rule and we're to implement his rule. We're to do it for God and we're to do it like God. You might say, how on earth are we to do it like God? I can't say, let there be light and there is light. How am I to do it like God? Well, do you remember last week what we saw, what we heard from Genesis 1? What was God doing in Genesis 1? He was putting things into order. He ordered, he he separated out. Okay, there's this great jumble, this mass of stuff, and he separated out light and darkness. He separated out sea and land. He separated out the atmosphere and the planet, ordering it and then filling it. Filling it with all sorts of good things. Caring for it. And that's what we're to do. Fill it and care for it. Verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Subdue it. God made a world bursting with life. And it's a wonderful world, bursting with life. But life can tend to get disordered. And I think there's a hint here that even in Genesis 1, before the fall, it could still tend to get disordered. And so it needed to be subdued, it needed to be brought into order. We're to work at orderliness. And we're to fill it, verse 28. 
fill it. Now, of course, that, a lot of that is getting at filling it with people. It's getting at having children. But it's also to bring out the fruitfulness and the fullness of what God has made. God made this planet, but he says, oh, it, needs, it needs people to care for it. And so he put people to order it, to subdue it, to rule it, to care for it, to bring out the fullness of it. What things has God put in this world that then have needed humans to bring them out and develop and subdue and order? Can you think of some? Well, there's gas, isn't there? And there's electricity. And there's the way plants and animals could be bred to make new varieties. And there's metals and there's minerals. And there's laws of physics that we can discover and then use to make technologies. And, ah, you could just go on and on, couldn't you? In fact, you could say the history of the human race is basically the history of discovering what God's put in the world and ordering it and using it and bringing out its goodness. So is God just interested in what goes on in church? Is the only work that matters to God gospel work? I think the answer is totally obvious, isn't it? But I've asked the question because we often act as if it's just what goes on in church and gospel work that matters if you're really spiritual. No. What a misunderstanding of the Bible. What a narrow view of what God's interested in. Genesis 1 gives value to so much human activity. To the university professor discovering God's world to the street cleaner bringing order in God's world, to the father and mother bringing up the next generation of the image of God, to the engineer developing and using materials God has put in his creation. We are here to do such things and to do them for God and as his representatives. Genesis 1 gives value to our ordinary everyday roles. It says actually they're not so ordinary. You're doing them for God as his representative. We're discovering who we are. The Bible says you are the image of God. You're put here to relate and to rule as God's representatives. But all that means a third R about us. And the third R is responsible. All that makes us responsible. I'm going to read you two verses. See if you can spot the difference. The first is verse 22. Verse 22 about the animals. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Sorry, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. Okay, there's one about the animals. Now, verse 28 about humans. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth. Sounds just the same. But did you spot a difference? I know there's differences if we read on, but I've purposely not read on. In those bits, did you spot a difference? The difference is this. In verse 22, God said it's about the animals. Just like he said, let there be light, and there was. He said it about the animals, and they did it. But in verse 28, God said it to the humans. God said it to the humans. It was a command. And they were held responsible for obeying. 
It wasn't just an instinct put in them, but it was a command to them, and they had to go and actively, thoughtfully, responsibly do it. There's a difference between us and animals. We are responsible beings. From our kitchen window, you can see a bird box. And in the spring, I really like watching the blue tits fly back and forth. They just keep going all the time. One flies in, presumably with food, another flies out, and then just backwards and forwards. I don't know how they have so much energy feeding their young. And it's rather funny we're seeing it from our kitchen window, because we seem to spend quite a lot of time in our kitchen feeding our young. So are we just a more complex version of the blue tits? Yeah, it's, life is just the same, really, as for a blue tit, isn't it? It's just like, we're just a more complex version. No, says the Bible, because God said about them they are to do this, and he put an instinct in them. But God said to us humans, here's your role. And so we must do it, not as an instinct or as a drudgery, but out of obedience to God, with awareness. Here's a valuable role God has given us. That is true of our relationships and our role. In other words, that's true of our family life and our work. Something that we are responsible to do with awareness. Here's a role God's given us. Now that gives us dignity. It makes us different from the animals and gives us dignity. But with dignity comes responsibility. Another example from our home. In our home, moths have been eating the carpet. That is really annoying. Eating the carpet and making holes in it. So when I see a moth in the home, I kill it. Sorry to any animal rights activists, but I'm just being honest with you. If I see a moth, I go after it and I kill it. But I don't say, right you moth, I'm putting you on trial for the crime of carpet eating and I'm going to trap you for three days in prison, punishment. That's stupid, isn't it? Because the moth is a nuisance, but the moth is not responsible. Now, our society views us as just animals. And increasingly, that, views up, that means viewing us as just machines, chemical machines that work to make one person angry and another person thoughtful, but you're just machines. It's just your chemicals. But we are more than that. We're the image of God. And that dignity also means responsibility. And so God will treat everyone with this dignity. God will treat all the people he's made with this dignity. He will hold us responsible for our lives. He will hold us responsible for what we have done with the image of God. None will be considered too poor or too insignificant. Oh, they're not worth bothering holding to account. No, no. They're just obscure little nobody. No. All the image of God, every single person will give an account to God for what you've done with the life he's given to you. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due to him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Being made in the image of God gives you great dignity, and with that comes great responsibility. Who are you? Put here by God, given a role and dignity, responsible for what you do with it. And that means we need the fourth R. And this one isn't in Genesis 1, but we really need it. Restored is the fourth R. Restored. Now, 
One of my difficulties this morning is I'm speaking from Genesis 1, and Genesis 1 is a perfect world, but I'm speaking in 2019, and 2019 is not a perfect world, because it went so wrong in Genesis 3. And so the Bible says we are still the image of God, but we have got so spoiled. Think of it like this. Imagine an impressive big house. And it's, it, it was, it's an architecturally interesting house. But the squatters have got in. And they've graffitied on the walls. And they've smashed the windows. And they've used it as a drugs den. You can still see that it's an impressive house, but it's really spoiled and misused. And that's us. We're still the image of God, but we're spoiled and misused. So we're still male and female, but, oh boy, what a lot of troubles there are about being male and female, and what a lot of confusion about it. And we're still made to relate, but how many stresses are there in the relationships, especially between the male and female? And how many wars because we relate badly? And we're still to rule, but when you heard rule, I think there's a fair chance you thought exploitation. Cutting down rainforests, and hunting animals to extinction, and polluting oceans, because we're still ruling, but in a greedy, selfish way, a harmful way, a careless way. And we're still responsible, but we tend to veer from over-anxious, controlling character to the careless, irresponsible character. You see, we've still got all those aspects of God's image, but they've all got a twist in them. They've all got spoilt in some way. We're like the beautiful old house, but the squatters have got in. And this squatter is called Sin. And he needs to be kicked out, and we need to be restored. And that, as most of you know, is the storyline of the Bible. Why did Jesus come? Oh, you might say, so I could be forgiven. What a great answer. What a wonderful truth. But wonderfully, the Bible says even more than that. It says he came so we could be restored. That's why we read Colossians 1. It's a chapter about God restoring us. It's about a chapter about God making us people who could even live lives worthy of him. And at the centre of that chapter it says, he is the image of God. The Son of God became a man and he lived the perfect life we should have lived as the complete image of God. And then he died as we should die. And he did it so we could be forgiven, yes, but more, so we could be restored. Why do we sing Psalm 23? Because it's good to sing a psalm, but also this. He restores my soul. Or John chapter 10, Jesus said, I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. In other words, back as the restored image of God. 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The image of God being remade. And where's it all heading? 1 John chapter 3, when we see him, we will be made like him, the perfect image of God. You see, the Bible isn't just about a free ticket to heaven. It's about remaking us, restoring us to be the people God designed us to be. We can have that work begun in us now, and we can have it completed when Jesus returns. So do you feel like the olive spoon? Do you remember the olive spoon? 
Does your life sometimes feel like that, maybe? Like the olive spoon being used to spoon sugar. And a lot of effort, but it, like, stuff just drains out of you and it just doesn't work. Because you haven't recognised what you're here for. Not for yourself, but to represent God. Are you like that beautiful home taken over by the squatters? You're an amazing creature made in God's image, but spoilt and misused. Jesus came to put that right. He can start restoring you now, and he'll complete it when he returns. So have you asked him to do so? Not just said a formal prayer. Oh yeah, I've said that prayer once many years ago. No, no. Have you cried out to him because you see, this is what I need and he's the one who can do it. Have you cried out to him? Are you trusting him to do so? Are you turning from living your way and seeing, oh, that's just getting it wrong. I'm made for something better and you turn to his way for him to restore you. And fellow Christians, you've been restored. You are a new creation. Don't let the world set your identity. Don't let our confused and messed up society tell you who you are. You're the image of God remade in Jesus. So in your relationships, in your work, this week, will you be living to reflect him?